Hello everyone, welcome back to Why Did Peter Sink? If you haven't started at episode one, I would recommend you doing that, but you can start anytime, and thanks for listening. This week we are doing part two to The Foolish Brother. This is episode 32, The Unrighteous Brother. As easily as I can fall back into old habits, when I've quit old habits, I can fall into righteousness and correction. I can fall into a false righteousness. There's no sugarcoating this. Here's the sequence of events. Once I stop going in the wrong direction, I will do the next right action, and I get on the beam and walk, steady as she goes on the beam. I'll ask for forgiveness, and while in that state, I will understand the need for love of God and others over myself and mercy. I understand that concept. In tune with a higher power, while I'm in the recovery zone, I feel the good. And fresh from the rut of doing the wrong thing, I'm refreshed, restored, raised up from the gutter. But then the danger comes. I will pass over that middle ground of understanding and humility and slide right over into a feeling of pride about my own goodness and this newfound recovery. Pride in all forms is the direct opposite of humility. As I'm doing the next right action, I begin to think that I am right, that I am good and even better than others. I'll think that I have knowledge and that now I'm standing on the high ground over the valley of the deadly sins. And this can easily beckon me onward to the belief that everyone should act like me. And suddenly, I'm the model. Everyone should be standing on the mountain like I am. This is the great danger of getting clean. It's funny we still use the word clean, as in cleansing or bathing, when we have won in battle over an addiction or a vice. As Jesus pointed out about the Pharisees, they were always washing to be clean on the outside. We are still constantly scrubbing today, trying to get clean. We can get equally lost being clean as we can being dirty. Pride suffocates any sense of mercy or humility. There's a plateau that exists between where the prodigal son eats with the pigs in his valley of despair and where his upright brother, the righteous brother, the one that did everything correctly in life, stands at the peak of presumption. Despair and presumption, both are wrong. Even the climber high on the mountain can fall into a giant glacial crevasse that will swallow him in darkness. You are not safe from falling just because you are higher in the mountain. No, in the rarefied air near the peak, there's less oxygen and more cliffs to tumble down. The parable of the prodigal son is not just about the wastrel brother who comes back to God. The popular part of the story is about the drunk, foolish brother. We all love the idiot brother, and we read it sympathizing with him and his father for forgiving him. Why? Well, for one thing, we can identify with him, because there's a little bit of sensing our own brokenness in all of us, which we don't really like to admit, but we know is there. The other main reason is because mercy rings out in the story as a right action. We're sentimental to stories of mercy, rightly so, since we all need mercy. But we kind of hate the older brother, the do-gooder who judges his returned brother and complains to his father that the grand reception of the foolish brother isn't fair. 
the father runs out to receive the missing brother, the foolish brother. He doesn't even wait. He just flies out toward him. But this parable is every bit as much about the older brother, the one who does everything correctly. And I am both of them. I have been both brothers, and I probably will be both of them again in the future, in the very near future. We are all, I suspect, both of the brothers at different points in our lives. And this is why it's such a great story. Even today, in small ways, I may be both of these brothers. I stray away from faith, away from trust in God, in different ways now than I did as a teenager. When I was in my 20s or 30s, I strayed in different ways than I did as a teenager as well. And in fact, today, I am more likely to stray in the manner of the older brother than I am to stray like the prodigal son. The older brother wants some justice against his younger brother. He wants fairness. He's been holding down the fort. He's been running the estate. He's been keeping the business together all these years. He's been making money. He's been doing the right thing. He wants some recognition. And really, he wants to feel superior and even get a little revenge on his younger brother. All this time, the older brother's been showing up and doing the work, staying on target, never wavering, never questioning his father's will. And if his father doesn't punish the younger brother, but instead celebrates his return, then why hasn't the father ever celebrated the older brother's work? He's been doing the right thing and being responsible for so many years. How can it not be recognized? And he's right. It's not fair. Or, according to our instinctual sense of justice, it's not fair. And this happens at work all the time in offices around America where someone who doesn't put in effort receives the same bonus or raise as those who do. Everyone knows this isn't fair, and it often destroys employee office morale. Employees have a very sensitive feel for exactly how little work must be done to achieve the most benefit, and high-flying achievers often quit or complain when someone who doesn't work gets the same rewards. If you haven't seen the movie Office Space, that's what it's about, doing as little as you can to get the maximum reward because you know if you bust your butt, you're not going to get anything more, which is a terrible way to live, but uh, it happens in offices every day. The interesting thing about the parable is that so many of us dislike the older brother's reaction, but that is exactly how we tend to react. If anyone gets anything more than us, and especially someone who seems undeserving, outrage is inevitable. Anger rises within us. I've seen coworkers outraged at someone for receiving a coffee mug that others did not receive. And the parable is talking about eternal life here, not a porcelain mug that costs the company maybe one dollar. The drunken foolish brother so clearly needs help that he's, he's eating with the pigs that we don't need to think about him much. We know he needs help. It's, uh, so the parable often seems only about him, but really the foolish brother has an easier and more joyous experience in returning to God because he has fallen down on his face and is forced to change. His need for change is obvious. His burden requires that he let go of his ego to return to God utterly humbled. No, humiliated is the right word for the prodigal son. 
After choosing vices and sin instead of good behavior and trust in God or his Father, he needs forgiveness and mercy. His burden and need to return is easy to understand, but it's not as easy to understand for someone who has been following all the rules all along. And this is the difference between disobedience and pride, where the former disobedience shows up in obvious errors made, often externally, while pride robs us of the proper interior state that is needed. And this can be seen all the way back to the Old Testament versus the New Testament, where Adam disobeys God in pursuit of worldly pleasures, while Jesus obeys and denies himself any form of pride. The old teaching was to obey. The new teaching is how to fix your heart. Pride affects the heart. The parable of the brothers show us both the exterior and interior problem of all humans, and the fix for both is shown in the life of Christ. That's what I didn't get for a long time, is that it's not just about exterior looking good, it's about the interior change. Now, when I screw up, I know that I have to turn back. And this is actually the easy part. But it wasn't easy to know that for a long time. But once I realized the, really the lies that the culture sells us, and that turning back to God is the way, the recognition of being on the wrong road happens more often and more quickly now. The trick is to remember to turn back every day, every hour. In the saying that God writes straight with crooked lines, that's a common refrain in recovery circles. Those that overshoot the true path the right way can always turn back. So even a truly righteous person like Peter or Paul or Mary Magdalene zigzag through life. Just like I swim in a triathlon, zigzag, not straight. I'm not ever going toward the buoy like I should be. I'm zigzagging. I can't keep my head up long enough to see the buoy. I swim this way. I go overcorrect. I come back. I made a mistake. I come back, but I'm going toward the buoy all along. And eventually, hopefully, I get there if I don't drown. Only by effort can we return to the path, the way, and only Jesus ever walked the straight line the entire way. So no one's going to do it straight. And no one, anyone who tells you they are, are lying or selling you something, as they say in The Princess Bride. As for us, we are all too ready to justify our gossip or our drinking or our drug use or even swearing or jerking off as normal, acceptable behavior because we have chosen the modern religion where all things are permitted. And thus we think, we don't have to deal with it. That's just how we are. Well, we are that way, but there's a cure. But for whatever time we say uh, whatever or meh, uh, that's the new saying, you know, for our, I don't care, whatever, it doesn't matter. The indifference, whenever we're into the indifference, when we're selecting those actions that we know are actually not right, we will have to deal with those choices made someday, someday down the road, and it's going to be right after we exhale our final breath in a long moment known as eternity. And if that doesn't concern you, in the end, it might burn you. The younger brother, he turned away from God and lived wildly, only to find himself eating with the pigs at their trough. This seems really easy to turn away from, 
because who would want to do that? But it's not. It's not easy at first. I've spent many chapters or episodes of this journey in the early season or early episodes describing how hard it is to turn back to God once you've gone the other direction. When you're on the wrong path, stubbornness over bad choices can make it difficult to even admit there's a problem, and the only way you want to come back is through some other means, like pharmaceuticals or some other new age kind of thing. Once your path is chosen and it's the wrong path, but you see it as the correct path, an immense change of heart is needed to turn back again. However, each time you do turn back and you try and ask and seek and knock and cry out for help, it gets easier to do it. In the parable of the prodigal son, the foolish brother is fully restored. And perhaps we like to think he never turns back to the wayward lifestyle. This really is a happily ever after parable. The greatest thing about it is this is a story. Neither brother ever existed. It's Jesus telling us a story to understand how to live. And he does it in such an amazing way in the Gospel of Luke in a page with this, with this parable. But here's the important thing of what I'm trying to say today. I can tell you what the danger is for the prodigal son once he has repaired his life and found his way back. The danger that awaits him is excess righteousness like that of his older brother. In the parable, the older brother is coached down by his father from his peak of presumption to join the despairing brother on the plateau of understanding. Despair means you, can, you think you can never be forgiven by God for what you've done is so bad. It's self-hatred. Presumption thinks, I'm going to heaven, I'm perfect, I can make no mistakes. And these, neither one of these work. You need to be in the middle, humility and mercy. And that's what the father's showing. The older brother cannot fathom how his father rejoices over the, the idiot son that squandered his fortune and sullied the family name. The older brother could be plucked right out of our world today, striving in our merit-based economy and chasing the accolades of our honor culture. He's disgusted by the fool he must call his brother. Look, all these years I've served you and not once did I disobey your orders. That's what he says, that's a straight quote. What's he saying? I never disobeyed you. But his father explains that the true glory of this world is finding the lost brother. He explains that the older brother does not lose anything by rejoicing in the return of his other brother, who is restored to health. And the righteousness then melts away from the older brother once he understands, once he understands why his father is celebrating. The older brother has been doing the right thing for the wrong reason. And he has to change his heart from righteousness into understanding, returning to loving his brother instead of clinging to his own merit and clutching his pearls of self-worth. By doing the next right action, I can go from being the younger brother to the older brother, and neither one is in the right place. Since today we all worship ourselves, the older brother is everywhere. We all think we are right, or righteous, and that our opinions and decisions are the correct ones, always. And we love to stone people online who fall outside of our worldview. 
Our world has billions of righteous brothers and billions of foolish brothers. The middle area between the ruts is the right place, the plateau. This is the place the brothers need to strive toward, to be on that space where Jesus taught us to stand. The, the ruts of pride and disobedience both suck you downward and further away from the light of heaven. The younger brother, once he has found his good sense and received his dad's love again, he may very easily perch himself upon the same cliff of presumption that the older brother occupied, and he will fall headlong into the ditch called pride. And there's much to say about the older brother of this parable, but I, I will, I'll stay focused on the problem child for a bit, the foolish brother, as at the end of the parable, what is his danger? His danger is becoming the older brother. The trick to fixing yourself without becoming overly righteous and without dwelling too much on the past takes some practice. And if you're like me, you will fail. You will fail. Just remember these two quotes. One, progress, not perfection. And two, perfection kills. Somehow, some way, you must preserve your mistakes and keep them ever ready to hold up in front of your eyes like night crawlers in a glass jar under your arm. Otherwise, you may forget about those mistakes of the past and soon pretend that you never held a jar full of night crawlers. You've never seen it. You've, it's forgotten. But at the same time, you can't cry and grovel for forgiveness and wear the jar around your neck like a millstone forever. If you have sincerely tried to make the change through conversion and penance, then you start from there and move forward. You take a picture of that jar of night crawlers and keep it in your wallet or put a poster on your wall. Never forget those mistakes. It's important. Otherwise, self-justified righteousness will swallow you up just as easily as the urge to do the wrong thing pulled you off course in the first place. Preserve and remember those times and those mistakes. Those are vital memories to keep. Those awful nights... Yes, those ones that, will, that may keep you from ever running for public office. Yeah, that's, those are the nights I'm talking about. Yes, those mistakes that should stop you from ever considering the idea of starting a blog or a podcast because you are such an extraordinary hypocrite. Yeah, those ones. And yes, you should have those mistakes dangled in front of you now and then by someone that doesn't like you because being humbled is the best possible thing that ever happens to you in this world. Embrace the mistake. Don't deny it. If anything, it should keep you humble because the error of becoming perfect means you presume that you have no sins, which is a sin. That's what I like about it. The sins are so well defined in the catechism of the Catholic Church that even if you don't like what it tells you, it is very logical and consistent. Despair is the sin of thinking you cannot be forgiven that's the prodigal son, self-hatred. Presumption is thinking you're already perfect. The self-love, which is what the older brother does. And both of them block us from proper humility before God. You never forget the mistakes, but you move on. You move on because you can't wallow and dwell in that worm dirt forever. Or you may never grow out of it and you'll only be compost. The indifference of compost. The time of supplication and mourning must lead to the next phase of the heart, which is the interior change. By suffering, we grow. By challenge, we change. 
Without suffering and challenge, we would always be children or adolescents. Without suffering or challenge, we would continue on the wrong paths until death. And most importantly, without suffering, Jesus would not have conquered sin and death. He told us quite plainly, as Jesus is so good at doing, unless a wheat falls to the earth and dies, it will bear no more wheat. But if it dies, it will bear much more wheat. This is a hard one to understand sometimes, but it makes sense. If you, you have to read it and contemplate this. Unless a wheat falls to the earth and dies, it will bear no more wheat. But if it dies, it will bear much more wheat. There's various translations, but this is not some exterior appearance of us that must change. Penance is a dirty word in our times, but I believe that's only because we don't really understand it anymore. And here's a hint about what it means. This is from the Catechism. Jesus' call to conversion and penance does not aim first at outward works, but at the conversion of the heart, interior conversion. Without this, such penances remain sterile and false. However, interior conversion urges expression in visible signs, gestures, and works of penance. Interior repentance is a radical reorientation of our whole life. That's from the Catechism, paragraphs 1430 to 1431. When I believe I've made the conversion of the heart, I can easily fool myself. And here's a movie example. There's a movie called The Devil's Advocate with Al Pacino and Keanu Reeves, where Pacino plays the devil and works on the vanity of his target, a lawyer played by Keanu Reeves. The devil dangles the bait of glory in front of the lawyer, allowing him to become the best lawyer in New York City, helping the lawyer win case after case. He's a hotshot lawyer. He's got the devil in his corner. He's winning case after case. Despite defending guilty and repulsive clients, the lawyer revels in the glory of winning. And while, and then same time, he rejects the need of his wife and his mother. The devil is eventually rejected by the lawyer because the lawyer has a change of heart and he sees the evil. The lawyer's free will wins as he chooses the next right action, which separates the devil from him, and the devil has to fall back into hell, and Keanu Reeves is saved. And everything's great. So the lawyer's free from the temptation, and he appears to move on with his life until the last scene. A happy ending is just right there in his sight. He's very humbled, and once humbled, he becomes quickly satisfied with himself. He's like me. He dusts off his hands thinking, well, I took care of that problem of evil and found the Lord. But at the end of the movie, Al Pacino returns in a disguise as a newspaper reporter who wants to do a story on the, quote, lawyer with a conscience, the lawyer who lost a case for choosing to do the right thing, choosing morality over glory. And suddenly the devil, once again, has the lawyer chasing a new lure of fame, a different kind of glory, but still the same vice. And the devil, Al Pacino, all toothy and smiling and smoke rolling off him, says at the end of the movie, vanity, definitely my favorite sin. So what's the lesson? I know some people like that movie and other things it's cheesy, but it does. I, I, I like the story. I like where it kind of... Uh, leads us. When you're led astray, 
you get yanked off course by one of these vain wishes or addictions, by the desire to do the wrong thing. And worse yet, even when you're pulled back to sanity, you can get lured right over to a different desire. Glory, honor, pleasure, wealth, power. There are more disguises over these hooks than you'll find in a bait shop. In other words, the desire for one thing may seem conquered, but that doesn't kill off the problem. It returns in a new form, using a new method, in a new manner, unsuspecting, but just as cunning. It never stops. This problem isn't something to beat and put on a shelf like a trophy. No, it returns. Unceasingly, it finds you, and you find it. The only way to combat this constant pursuit of you is that you must have the interior conversion. You must receive God to believe and believe to receive God every single day. There is no day off. You never get to dust off your hands and hang up your hat. There is not an end of the road or a truck stop named Faith where this problem stops. Interior conversion is an active, living, breathing idea that you must pursue or you'll lose it. To believe is a verb. To pray is a verb. Prayers use present tense, not past tense. You don't need help yesterday. You need it now and tomorrow. Choices you made yesterday have already come and gone. Your free will has already played that hand. But today and tomorrow have many choices yet to be revealed, traps to watch out for, and sufferings to endure. Some examples of powerful prayers are as follows, and I'm pointing these out because they all use present or future tense. First one, the prayer of St. Michael. Here's the first line. St. Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle. Be our protection against the wickedness and snares of the devil. The Hail Mary. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou. The prayer to the Holy Spirit, the first sentence. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful and enkindle the, in them the fire of your love. The prayer of St. Francis, here's the first line. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Jesus' prayer, my favorite one. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's all of those use present tense. You might have a hard time finding prayers that don't use present tense. Prayer is to give glory to God and ask him for help now, today. We're not stocking up prayers for next week or when I'm 80 years old. The power of prayer is that it gives direction, strength, and humility and orients us back toward God, which means we receive the gift of grace, of humility. That's what we need. But once I correct myself from errors and after I find that humility, if I ever have, I know I'm far away from it, but what can happen is that I shove off the dock of those sins and think I will never see or experience that shore again. I say, adieu, prodigal ways. It's back to the trough and the pigs with you. 
But as that place of sin recedes on the horizon into days past, I grow smug and quickly righteous, thinking I've escaped my weaknesses, only to wake up one morning surprised to find that the problem is back in bed with me. Like Jonah, I can't outrun myself. How hilarious it is to find yourself in these ancient biblical stories. Except it's not so funny when you go, when you go through it because you realize that the allegories and characters are more than just old writings. They are a fact of your very real life in the 21st century. There's a quote that says, wherever you go, there you are. And that's a saying I know well. I travel with myself wherever I go, wherever I've moved, wherever I've lived, whatever I've worked at, whatever hobby I've pursued, the dock and the shore, the time and the place, wherever I push off from, those things never held or harbored the problem. Those are just places and things. I have the problem. It's part of me. The dysfunction travels with me. Things are just things, but I am the carrier of the disease. Watch the news today, and you will see the evidence that all men and women carry this problem not just a few. As Chesterton said, the only evidence we have of any doctrine is that of original sin, because you can just pick up a newspaper or watch the news and you can see it every single day of this flaw in human beings. So what's the fix? It's this interior conversion that must be renewed constantly or the proper placement of self starts to wander or my compass to true north gets skewed by the magnetism that draws me back to the wrong thing. Humility is the right place to be. The elevation of the self is how both brothers in the parable make their error, one by chasing pleasure and the other by assuming honor. In the middle between them is where they both realize they are not God, that they are both sinners, and that they need and love each other. There's no other kind of error, pardon me, there's one other kind of error. Um, it's in challenging God. That's, that's arrogance. To think that God owes you something, that he is a personal genie or sugar daddy. Um, I've heard him, someone said, uh, slot machine. I put a quarter in, I get something out. That's the other big mistake, especially when you're in this false righteousness. If we make something so small out of God that he can be something that gives us what we want, then I don't think we understand him at all. We, he owes us nothing. We need him. He does not need us. He loves us. He's created this world. He loves this world. That's a, that's a core belief. But if we make him so small as that we can make trades with him, if we, we give him five minutes of our day and expect prosperity or money, it's wrong. I don't, know how else to, I don't know how else to think of that, but he doesn't owe us anything. In fact, consider Jesus on the cross between the two criminals. The first criminal is not like the older brother in the prodigal son. He's not righteous. No, that criminal is even in a worse state of mind. He, has, he hasn't acted righteous. He hasn't done anything good. He's being, he's being crucified for a crime that he committed 
that he's not even apologizing for, but he is up there deriding Jesus and saying, are you not the Messiah? Save yourself and us. Not only is he mocking Jesus, but he's expecting some kind of transaction from him. He's saying, well, if you're so great, why don't you show us? How many people today are like the first criminal on the cross next to Jesus? I think this is how a lot of us pray. We give nothing or very little to God because we don't believe in him and then say, well, God hasn't done anything for me. He owes you nothing. And if you have rejected God because you didn't get something, you are the first criminal on the cross. He's not righteous. He's not sorry. He's not humble. But he wants a miracle. And worst of all, he feels that he deserves one. Now put that Put that first criminal's attitude against the humility of the second criminal, the good thief, who has committed the same crime as the other criminal, but reacts in a completely opposite manner. The first shows arrogance directly to God, while the second shows humility. And although that good thief is late to the game of conversion, like the prodigal son, he's now in the stadium and he's saying he's staying there as Jesus recognizes true faith in him, whenever he sees it in people, he recognizes it. He knows what their heart has in it. And no matter when it comes in a person, he doesn't say, oh, it's too late. He tells the second criminal, truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. So the danger of humility is that it can be in the right place, only to switch into righteousness or arrogance in the blink of an eye. That's what is the great thing about talking to alcoholics who've quit drinking for 20 years. They, they get these things. They understand them. Many of them understand it. I'm sure some better than others. But this is where faith, hope, and charity must be prescribed. I am not a doctor. I'm not a scientist. I'm an IT troubleshooter. Um, what do I know? But I will say, a doctor would probably offer some cocktail of pills as a cure for this. But there's a better pharmacy, and it's free, and it's called a church. Faith and humility go together. In fact, they are inseparable. Likewise, faith and joy go together. These two are inseparable. It's funny the chasing of joy that we look for in drinking or drugs or sex or whatever, and it's all a temporary and false joy, and there's something so much more lasting, but no one wants to try it. Well, many people do, but many people don't. I am not a doctor, but I wish doctors had suggested these three things to me called faith, hope, and charity years ago, as if a someone from in a lab coat had suggested it, I would have listened more so than someone in a, in, a, um, in a church. It would have saved me two decades of searching. But then again, even if they had suggested it, I doubt I was ready to hear it. I would have demanded the pills anyway, I suspect. In fact, I wonder how many doctors with faith would like to suggest this to patients, but they're not allowed to. It's a shame. So after you screw up, just to follow up on this, after you screw up, you take that next right action. 
you ask for humility and pray for hope. There's a saying, you pray for the willingness to be willing. You pray for the willingness to be willing, which at first doesn't make sense. It's one of those that you have to think about because if you don't believe, you want it, you have to ask for that help, for the willingness. If you lack belief, say this awkward sentence, God, I believe, help my unbelief. That always sounded so strange or ridiculous to me, but it works. And if you want belief, if you say, come Holy Spirit, it shows up. I'm not selling anything here on this podcast or blog. I'm not advertising anything that I will make money on. This is all free. Take it or leave it. I don't want your money or praise. I just want you to know that there is hope. And if you pray for willingness to be willing, if you try to believe while you are riddled with doubt, something will happen to you. There is so much hope, even when you doubt, but you have to try to receive it. You need to graft your life onto God, onto the living vine, and then you will drink from it. Because when you're detached from it, you're not getting anything from the source. What is hope? What is it? Well, here's a definition. Hope is the theological virtue by which we desire the kingdom of heaven and eternal life as our happiness, placing our trust in Christ's promises and relying not on our own strength, but on the help of the grace of the Holy Spirit. The virtue of hope responds to the aspiration to happiness which God has placed in the heart of every man. It takes up the hopes that inspire men's activities and purifies them so as to order them to the kingdom of heaven. Hope keeps man from discouragement. It sustains him during times of abandonment. It opens up his heart in expectation of eternal beatitude. Buoyed up by hope, he is preserved from selfishness and led to the happiness that flows from charity. That's from the Catechism, paragraphs 1,817 to 1,818. As St. Paul said, So faith, hope, charity abide, these three. But the greatest of these is charity. And I could have ten episodes on these three virtues and never cover it, never even touch it. Others have written about it much better than I can anyway, such as St. Teresa of Avila's Interior Castle, or St. Francis de Sales' Introduction to the Devout Life. There's a couple books you could check out and get much more than what you can from this podcast. When the next mistake comes around, don't throw up your hands and stay in the rut. Don't give up. Step out of the rut. Stay out of these twin ruts of disobedience and pride. Pray for humility. Pray for hope to keep your spirits up. And recall that your life is not about you. Remember that saying? My life is not about me. Make it about something built to last. And those somethings are faith, hope, and charity.